everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, we're framing this podcast around creating your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Today is a very, very interesting podcast, something I didn't even know existed just a few weeks ago. And I think it may be one of the most interesting breakthroughs to come into the world of fitness and professional athletics in certainly the last 20 years. Francis Hallway sits down with me today to discuss his discoveries and his research in a area called kin anthropometrics, which is effectively the study of the size and proportions of the skeletal structure of the body. Now, that may sound weird and obscure and unimportant to you, but let me tell you why that's interesting. Everyone has a different size and shape and density skeletal structure. Your bones will all be different lengths, so all be different sizes and proportions and relative to one another. So your lower leg to your upper leg may be different from person to person. Your arm length may be different person to person, an upper arm and lower arm. And that may predispose you to being really, really uh, well adapted to partake in particular athletic events. So as children, as adults, our bodies, our structures are, structures are suited to be really, really good at certain things. Now, wouldn't that be interesting as a child or as a teenager or even as a young adult to be told and shown what your body is best suited for and what body weight would be best for that particular athletic endeavor? That's incredibly interesting. Francis Hallway has measured coming up on hundreds of thousands of people at this point from professional sports all across the world dancers, gymnasts, soccer players, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, you name the sport, uh, he has measured these people and found the approximate measurements that best suit elite performance in these sports. This is incredibly fascinating stuff. And uh, what they find is they can really accurately determine the best playing weight or the best performance weight for a particular athlete in a particular position. Now, that's very interesting. This podcast is incredibly fascinating. And even though it may sound like it's a bit of a stretch for a lot of us to, to maybe benefit from this information, Francis is an incredible wealth of information. He's also got an interesting background in nutrition that we talk about a little bit. I absolutely love sitting down with Francis in my office to go over what we call kin anthropometrics. Today's podcast is brought to you by Mag Breakthrough. I'm going to tell you why magnesium is perhaps one of the most important things that you should be taking that I certainly take every day. Did you know that over 80% of the population is deficient in magnesium? And that magnesium is the number one mineral to fight stress, fatigue, and sleep issues. Magnesium is something that I take literally every single day. If you're someone who's a high achiever, if you're someone who feels like you're a little bit stressed, if you feel like maybe your sleep isn't great, maybe you get a little bit of low-level anxiety or high-level stress, magnesium is absolutely imperative for you. And there's, I can give you the, the physiological reasons behind it or how it physiologically happens, but what you most importantly need to know is if you're not already taking a magnesium supplement, you're probably deficient. And even if you are taking a magnesium supplement, you have to make sure you're taking the best quality magnesium, ideally from multiple number of sources to allow your body to absorb the maximum amount. Mag Breakthrough is an incredible product. When I first started taking Mag Breakthrough, I noticed my stress levels decreased. I noticed my sleep improved. My heart rate variability increased simply by taking an elevated dose of magnesium. Now for me, about six to eight capsules a day is where I like to be, especially when I'm training hard. If I feel an increased amount of stress, I increase that amount even a little bit more than that. And it may sound like a lot to a lot of you, but this is one of those imperative supplements 
that we all need to be considerate of. Now, of course, this is not a medical recommendation. I suggest you speak to your doctor, but if you're someone who's looking to optimize health, magnesium is definitely something that I, I consider putting to the top of your list, uh, especially someone who's into fitness and wanting to optimize results. You know, guys, that results in the gym or really in anything is to do with how your body adapts to an imposed demand, right? Health effectively is the ability to adapt to imposed demand. And if we can't adapt, we don't respond, we don't grow, we don't get faster, bigger, stronger. So adaptation is key and having magnesium in there to allow your body to ultimately come back into that homeostatic place to adapt more effectively, more efficiently is imperative. So thank you to Bioptimizers for being an incredible sponsor of the podcast. And Bioptimizers is going to hook you up when you visit magbreakthrough.com slash muscle. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H forward slash muscle and use the coupon code MUSCLE10 to get hooked up with 10% off the highest quality magnesium that I'm able to find anywhere with seven amazing different sources of magnesium that is extremely effective at reducing stress or supporting high levels of stress and getting better sleep. So guys, thank you. And without further ado for me, you can enjoy my podcast with Francis Holloway. We are rolling with Francis Holloway, my friend. Welcome to the gym and welcome to Tampa. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So great workout facility, nice city, and an honor to meet you. Thank you. And, and as I said, uh, that conversation we had yesterday was literally mind-blowing. And I was like, we can't not have a conversation about this and, and share this information with the world. So um, I'd love to have you start with the backstory about maybe what Anthropometrics is and how you kind of got started into it, because I wouldn't assume, everyone I've mentioned it to, even people who are high-level coaches and athletes, don't necessarily understand anthropometrics. Okay. Uh, basically, anthropometry is the measurement of the human body. And um, it came about with anthropologists uh, about 100 years ago, trying to get in some engineering tools to measure the uh, remains of... Um, some of our ancestors wanting to find out their size. And that uh, started being used in, in living populations. And basically, it's a way to measure the size, the proportions, um, and the composition of, of the body. Um, basically, that's, that's what it is. And I came across it because it's an inexpensive tool and um, I wanted to know how to monitor the changes that, were, um, that came about through training and nutrition. So training and nutrition, you could modify your body. And I thought that was fantastic and exciting. And with anthropometry, I had a tool to be able to assess that change. How much? Would you say that your interest in bodybuilding played into your interest in anthropometrics? Because as you said, you had a very interesting story in the history of bodybuilding with the desire of, of having the body of looking like Tarzan. And that's, that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Well, my grandfather swam at the 1924 Paris Olympics. And he swam against Johnny Weissmuller, who was the Hollywood first, one of the first Tarzans in Hollywood. Oh, wow. And when I was a child, I would watch these black and white movies and I wanted to be like him. <laughs> So that was my objective, and afterwards, when I became a teenager, I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger on a magazine, and, and I, was, 
I knew that that's what I liked. So how much do you think that played into your curiosity <laughs> around proportions? Because we spoke about you know, your, your understanding of the history of how ultimately what breaks down as anthropometrics is massive. You mm -hmm. speak about the ancient Greeks. Um, you speak about the cattle industry. Like you've studied this uh, at every different angle. Yeah. Well, I think bodybuilding was essential to, to this. And um, actually what the judges do in bodybuilding is, is very interesting. You know, uh, analyzing size, proportions, uh, and and uh, and how lean you are, and everything. And anthropometrics was a way to do that instead of subjectively, objectively. Okay. So, what came first, the chicken or the egg, the bodybuilding or the anthropometrics? I don't know, but it's they. I found that they go hand in hand, and yeah. and it was fantastic. Yeah, we did take some time yesterday to measure up my body, which we can share later in the podcast and see like how I how I fit into, uh, you know, kind of the mold of a typical bodybuilder and maybe the mold of other sports. And that's where this becomes interesting, I think, is, um, you know, the, the measurement of children, the measurement of, of grown adults and professional athletes and saying, hey, based on your structure, um, this is how much muscle you may want to carry based on the objective of your, your, your sport or the objective of your position in that sport. And that's kind of what you've evolved this to, to look like. So could you start walking us down the path of how that discovery came about for you? Okay, yeah. Um, I was introduced, like everyone else, to the standard body composition methods where you divide the body into two parts, chemically defined, fat or lipid, and the rest, fat-free mass or lean body mass. And that's a great method, by the way. And... Um, but what I was interested in was uh, within the lean mass compartment, I wanted to quantify muscle mass, okay? And I wanted to quantify the skeleton. So I was interested not so much in a chemical compos body composition, but an anatomical body composition. Because I saw the human body like a racing car, where the muscle is the engine, that moves the chassis, and the chassis is the skeleton, okay? So then I ran into DEXA machines, which I love, and they're great. But they, a lot of the top athletes, the bigger athletes, wouldn't fit into the machines, unfortunately. I think that was your case. That was my case, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it's a great machine, and it gives you the bone mineral content, okay? Now, the bone mineral content is the chemical part of the skeleton. That's about 30 to 40% of the actual weight of the skeleton. So from a biomechanics point of view, uh, I wanted more information. I wanted to know what the whole skeleton weigh with its organic part, with its protein, collagen, water, uh, fat composition in it. So then I came across this... Um, method developed in, 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 East, in Western Canada, which is an anatomical body composition approach where you have to measure uh, several bone breaths to get the weight of the skeleton, a lot of uh, girths corrected by skin fold to get the muscle mass, and then with the skin folds you could get the adipose tissue, uh, and then you would measure the trunk to get the uh, organ and viscera part. And so this was developed from data on cadaver analysis. They analyzed 25 cadavers. They measured them. Then they cut them up and 
created these equations to validate them. And I thought this was an interesting approach, which was not very common or well known, because you have to do a lot of work. You have to measure 22 anthropometric variables. And um, when I came across it 25 years ago, there wasn't any reference data. So even if you were able to do it and say, oh, this is how much adipose, muscle, bone, uh, visceral organs, our skin you have, you know, is that good, bad? You know, there was no reference data. So I like the model. And what I've done is I've collected data for the last 25 years across the whole range of population uh, from anorectics to, to overweight people and all kinds of athletes from marathon runners, elite cyclists, triathletes, through field uh, sports like soccer players, rugby players, uh, all the way up to bodybuilders, powerlifters, CrossFit athletes. So we developed this uh, big database uh, to be able to know if I measure you, where you stand, for example. And then something funny happened. I, as a dietitian, in my consultation practice, I had a problem. I had um, natural bodybuilders that would come into my gym, uh, come into my office, and they wanted to increase their muscle mass. They wanted a diet or a supplement or a training program to increase their muscle mass. And there was a group a small group of, say, 20, 20 of them, where we systematically failed to make progress increasing muscle mass. So then we started analyzing that data and asking them, you know, when, how long have you been training? They had all been training for four to six years, quite thoroughly and taking care of the diet. And if they increased in weight, it was just all adipose fat, not muscle. So then we developed the hypothesis that they had reached a ceiling of their muscle hypertrophy potential. And um, we analyzed the data with a body composition and they all had five kilograms of muscle for every one kilogram of bone or five pounds of muscle for every pound of skeleton. So then the initial hypothesis that that was the upper level, a five to one ratio, actually was 5.2, but to make it simple, a 5 to 1 ratio of muscle to bone. And in females, it was a 4.5 to 1 ratio. So, so then we, we started analyzing and comparing the data to, to, to a normal population. And the average population, had a, the males had a 4.2 muscle to bone ratio, the females a 3.5. And in the lower end of this range, we find these marathon runners, these elite um, uh, endurance athletes that had the least amount of muscle. And they had 3.8 to 1 and in the males and 3.0 to 1 in the females. So we like built this whole picture, this whole range of minimal to maximal. And then we measured people with anorexia and they were below that lower threshold. And some people were able to go beyond that. For example, uh, we found that the population of African-Americans could go up to 5.5 uh, in the muscle-to-bone ratio. And then you have outliers, of course. So it has been a really nice uh, road these last 25 years, uh, building up this database and collab with collaborators from Australia, 
from Cuba, from Qatar, from Sweden, from the States, the Olympic Committee, from Brazil, Mexico, and all across other sports and in CrossFit, and um, lately with American football. And the model just fits the data quite well. So it sounds like um, if someone is attempting to add muscle, the, the average or maybe the most they could put on is about 20% of their body weight. So if, so if the average man is 4.2, sedentary man is 4.2 times the skeletal mass, and the high end of that is 5.2, it's just in around 20% of your, your body weight. So does that, does that seem to make sense? So if someone starts out at, say, 160 pounds, the most they're going to be able to put on is, say, another 32 pounds, and they're going to be capped? Probably, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, well, the way we do it, I mean, uh, I like the way you you thought it 20% more. The way I always calculate is, I, I always try and es I calculate the weight of the skeleton. For example, an average skeleton is 8.5 kilograms in a, in a male, uh, a 5 foot 9 male. So 8.5, that's what, 18 pounds, mm -hmm. okay? That's the average skeleton. Mm -hmm. Now, you multiply that by 5, say, and you get the amount of muscle, the estimated potential amount of maximum mu muscle mass they can hold. And um, if someone has a larger skeleton, say, a, I don't know, a 30-pound skeleton, you multiply that by 5, and you get that amount, mm -hmm. okay? So it relates to the size of your skeleton, whether it's 20% or more. Uh, depends. Depends where your starting where you sure. point is, okay? But we've, we, we have used this to look for skeletons for, say, sports like rugby. In some of their playing positions, you need a large skeleton. And um, it's very hard to find them. So we look for these skeletons because they are able to put on the, say, the 60 kilograms of muscle mass. <laughs> By the way, you have 68 kilograms yeah. of muscle mass. <laughs> You had more. Yeah, it's funny. I, I I walked around at like 320, 325, and I used to tell everyone, like, there's no question I could have got to 340 or 350. It was easy for me to walk around at 320. I wasn't I wasn't challenged. I wasn't out of breath. It didn't feel hard. We get some guys who walk around at 260, you can't walk upstairs. Even 280, they can't walk upstairs. They feel, they feel really labored. And for me, like, I had to restrict my eating at 325. <laughs> otherwise, I would have got bigger. Amazing. Because of the, cell, the size of my skeletal system. Now, going to your case the way we measured you yesterday, what I found interesting, uh, sure, you have the bone breadth to hold that kind of muscle mass, but analyzing your skeletal structural proportions, uh, bodybuilding wasn't a sport for you. Right. <laughs> I tell everyone that all the time. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Usually bodybuilders need a, you know, very wide shoulders, very narrow hips, a short trunk, you know, for the aesthetics parts, mm -hmm. arms that are not too long in order to build more muscle mass, and um, joints that start next to the distal uh, yeah, muscles. Muscle length, yeah. Yeah, length that starts at the distal joint and not be able to put fingers there and that kind of thing. And um, you had all those things against you, plus a, a big, a, a big, big cran cranium. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> I think it's great. And I, okay, I, I make that claim and you just validated it for me. I was like, man, it's, I just... Okay, this is amazing, okay? Thank you. He, he has gone beyond his uh, genetic difficulties or, or drawbacks with uh, specific... By using intelligence, 
and science and studying in order to put on the muscle mass in the right parts uh, uh, to get the proportions to be able to have a successful career in bodybuilding. Yeah, I think it was also stubbornness. Like I was definitely a type person who people say you can't do it. I was like, okay, here we go. So they told you you <laughs> can do it. Buckle up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, and 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 just as you would would know, the thing I was told from the time I was seventeen or eighteen years old is my shirt, my shoulders are too narrow, and my hips are too wide. I, I would never have the the leg size or the sweep because my my hips were too wide, and those became my strengths. And I just was like stubbornly persistent, I guess. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stubbornness will defeat. Uh, will defeat talent, will defeat genetics, uh, perseverance. Yeah. Perseverance and, and you know, keep, it, keep at it. Yeah. yeah, so I don't want to keep this about me, but so where I find this super interesting is, is you can walk into, like I say, a, a professional football team, um, you know, American football or, or, or a soccer or, or conventional football team and say, based on this person's bone structure, this is where they will be likely to optimize performance. And you've got some amazing case studies around like, hey, I can look at this person's body and go, they could be playing this much heavier or they should be playing this much less. Can you, can you walk us through some of those conversations? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting part. Of course, uh, I don't want to say that this is the reason, you know, the, the main predictor of performance. In a sport like, say, soccer or some forward positions in ice hockey, I mean, skill and talent Massive, yeah. and psychology yeah. are really important okay but there are other positions like a hockey defender or or lineman uh, that really need uh, to have the right bone structure to hold the amount of muscle that's required for their position their playing position and you mentioned something interesting because now we're moving away from estimating the maximal amount of muscle someone can hold to individual sports and individual positions and now what we try to do is to optimize. The, the main word is not maximize in most sports, but optimize, optimize the amount of muscle for each plane position. And we have found that certain plane positions that require acceleration and speed, they, they don't have to have the maximal amount of muscle mass. That, that can be detrimental to performance or contribute to injuries. They have to have the optimal amount. Acceleration is force over mass, okay, Newton. Mm. So, so in, uh, you have to have the optimal amount of muscle. And, and we have been working uh, just by interacting with sports and conditioning coaches. Uh, we have like a U-shaped curve where the maximal performance is at a certain range of muscle to bone ratio. So we're trying to pinpoint what's that ideal range for every sport for every playing position and for every individual skeleton within those playing positions. And that has been fascinating. It, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm very curious of the predictive nature of this, right? So we, we you know, I, I, my kids were in the gym and we're like, all right, let's measure up the kids and let's see what this means. And you have this ability to kind of forecast based on relative proportions. So I guess backing up, first we could talk about the predictive nature that you, that you saw in me. It's like the first thing you said to me was, you'd probably be very good at things like throwing uh, and, and baseball and like hitting. And I was like, yes, I was, you know, I was exceptional at that. Yeah. And so it's like, gosh, how, and you could just tell that without even asking any questions and just looking at my mm. skeletal structure. And the predictive nature is very interesting. Um, and I think has massive implication in kind of the long-term, um, you know, direction maybe of athletes and choosing their sport. Can you tell us a little about that? 
Yeah, the, the talent identification part is fascinating. And with anthropometrics, through research through, uh, that has been done in, in, in Canada at universities, long-term studies of children and adolescents, the, we have equations to estimate uh, maturation rate, whether it's early, late, or, or normal maturation, uh, final adult height, and also their body proportions, uh, what they will be once they're adults. So the main problem is when they're going through the growth, adolescent growth spurt, ages say 11, between 11 and 15, you have a change of proportions. The legs grow fast, uh, faster than the trunk. And later on, after your peak height velocity, your trunk grows faster. So you have a confusing period around there. But if you measure them, say, at age 10, before that growth spurt, they, their proportions at age 10 tend to stay on until adulthood, even though they go through this changing phase um, in the early adolescence. So you can choose athletes uh, according to their proportions and sort of suggest or orient them towards the sports or the activities that they will be most uh, likely successful in uh, with these measurements. For example, the obvious thing, uh, swimmers, uh, basketball players need height and they need a long wingspan or arm span to begin with. You know? Jumpers and sprinters, or long-distance sprinters, they need a short trunk, uh, long legs, and within the legs, a longer tibia than their femur, for instance. They need narrow hips. Uh, throwers that do rotational uh, explosive movements need wide hips and long arms. For example, you'd be good in discus mm -hmm. and javelin throwing and because you have long arms and, and wide hips mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and a strong uh, complexity. Uh, at first I thought swimming because you have very long <laughs> arms but because your skeleton is heavy you would sink yep. you would need too much, too much mass it's and your, your hips are wide yep. that creates a lot of turbulence mm -hmm. but um, eh, having those long arms it must have been very hard to put on muscle on the arms as well going back to your case again yeah. but yeah this is very interesting regarding the talent identification protocols uh, within their body proportions, which of course doesn't mean this is the definite road to success because there are other factors involved. And then again, perseverance and stubbornness can overcome this, like you in bodybuilding. Yeah. There's an article in the New York Times at the time of the 2008 Olympics in Peking. I was interviewed by science writer Gina Colata on the... Uh, on, on the outliers, okay? So there's a nice article there. It's still on the web, I think. On the outliers, people that didn't have the genetics to make it in that sport, but they were the best. Like, for example, high jumper Stefan Holm from Sweden. He was 1 meter 80, 5 foot 11. And he got the gold medal, say, in Athens 2004 by beating all the other ones that were about 6 inches taller than him. Wow. And he knew his deficiencies, so he trained himself, especially he strengthened his jumping side tibia through some specific training in able to produce more force or more muscle 
in the jumping legs to compensate his lack of height. So it's very interesting, these outliers. There's always an outlier there. I'd love to talk about outliers. One thing that, that brings my mind to is you know, maybe this reality that we haven't yet anywhere near come close to the potential limits of human potential. Because if you find people that fit perfectly into certain sports and then train them in a graduatedly uh, challenging or, or appropriate way, then I think we could certainly start pushing human performance beyond what we, what we typically have. And you know, that brings me to you know, choosing someone correctly for a sport anthropometrically is pro probably a really important prerequisite one to feeling good about a sport like a good reason why why someone may pursue it is because like you know, I'm, I'm really good at this it's a big part of it look you're touching on an in, a very interesting subject from a sports science part and from a philosophical L listen to m my experience with this I, uh the australians were 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 at that at advantage doing this that's how they chose their talent ids for example, Australia, in the Montreal Olympics, 76, they only won two medals, none of them gold. So they said, we've got to change this. So they started this massive, throughout the country, talent identification program through anthropometrics, measuring arm span, height, sitting height for leg length. And they, they found the talent, uh, because they only had 20 million people or 18 million people, and they had to compete with nations that had 300 million people or more. So they say, we cannot afford to lose any single talent if we find it, this outlier. And that way, they ended up with more than 50 medals per Olympic game by the year 2000, systematically, just by doing these simple anthropometric <laughs> measures. Okay. Now, I taught a course in Sweden, and I had uh, dietitians from the Norwegian Institute of Sport and we were talking about these facts, and they have a philosophy of not conditioning mentally children or adolescents into a particular sport. Yeah. And they don't believe in uh, sort of uh, gearing them towards a particular sport. Their idea of sport is to let them choose whatever they want and where they're happy. So we had a conflict there, and I respect their opinion. Sure. But I agree with you, and my experience has been that a lot of people are frustrated with a sport that they are not good at, and they could be a lot happier or have become a lot happier once they change to a sport that was uh, more in line with their body structure. Yeah, and I think if they if they land in something and they simply don't like it, that's fine, right? If if you're if you're told, hey, you know what, Francis, we're going to put you playing basketball, and you simply don't like basketball. They don't do it. But I think at least giving them the knowledge and, and like, hey, go try this. Try it out for a season. Try it out for a year. Maybe you're going to excel at it. Maybe you're going to get that positive dopamine flowing in your brain, that reward pathway. I think you might enjoy this. And I think that I think it's a really, really powerful thing for anyone at any age to start to discover. Yes. I, I tend to agree with your view on this, okay? Although I respect other views like the Norwegians. But... um. Uh, usually there's half a dozen sports that they can choose from. Sure. And if they're successful in it, you know, their confidence grows and they're happy in it. But that wasn't your case. Mm. I mean, you had to go against the tide w w with your genetics and you can also overcome that. So who's to say? Who's to say? But yeah. 
But there's certainly certain things that regardless of how hard I would have worked, I couldn't have succeeded in, right? Like I would have failed at swimming. I would have failed at basketball. Yeah. Like I just wouldn't have succeeded at those. So I just happened yeah. to pick one where I was kind of on the outlier. I was kind of on the outside maybe of the of the typical norm, but I was still kind of in range. Like there's certainly some advantages I had there yeah. with having the largest gluteal structure to put on a ton of muscle. Um, so, that, you know, it wasn't like I was way off in, in, in left True. field trying to True. play soccer or something. And then we have to differentiate something else here. Uh, why are you choosing a sport? Just because you enjoy it or because you want to get to the elite? Getting to the elite level, the professional level, yeah. that's another whole ball game. And there, 90% of the time, you have to have the right bone structure for that. Unless it's a skill-based sport. Yeah. I'd be very curious. Um, you know, we, we spoke briefly before we jumped on this recording uh, about some of the best practices. So I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there going, okay, awesome. Um, maybe I, they don't have access to someone like yourself to actually measure, but maybe they just want to, uh, you know, get an idea of where this child may fit in. So if you could walk us through, like you've done over the last couple of days, okay. like relative to, you know, these proportions, this is the kind of sport you'd be great at. So like, you know, you just mentioned about lower leg to upper leg ratios or torso length or arm length and how those may, just first things that come to mind as far as how that plays into being good at certain, certain um, athletic endeavors. Okay. You know, f first, uh, a caveat, there's always exceptions to the rule. Of course, yeah. Outliers. But um, in general, you can divide sports into two categories. Those that are thoroughly biomechanically oriented, like cyclic sports, like you do the same movement from start to finish, like running, like jumping, like throwing, like swimming, like rowing, like kayaking, okay? Gymnastics. Those sports that are so biomechanically dependent, they need a specific body structure that usually is different from the norm. Another sport, other sports that are, that, that are not so biomechanically uh, uh, dependent, like say soccer, they're more skill dependent, or certain positions in ice hockey or, or other sports, uh, you know, you can have a wide range of different body structures that can do it, okay? That's why perhaps soccer is such a popular sport, because just about every type of body can do it. Now. If you want to play basketball, height is very important. And you may say, yes, there, you have some short players in the NBA too. But they're the section to the rule and they play in the base position. Yeah. But uh, generally you need height that's above average. So height is one of the main uh, issues. But that's obvious. Now you need height for basketball, volleyball, uh, to be a lineman in American football. Um, you need shorter height for things like gymnastics and for the lower weight categories in Olympic weightlifting and in boxing and combat sports, okay? Um, but let's, let's go more into the other proportions, for example. Arms. You need long arms, say, in swimming, long arms in, in volleyball, uh, basketball. Okay, uh, discus throwing. You need short arms, shorter than normal, in any type of pressing movement to be good in, say, powerlifting pressing movements. Okay, sucked it. So bad. Okay, <laughs> but with your long arms, you're probably very good at deadlift. Yeah, it's very good at deadlift because you have to lean lower. Yeah, you you don't have to lean, lean that far. that far down. 
So in a sport like powerlifting, having long arms is an advantage in deadlift and a disadvantage in bench press. Okay? And also you, you might be more injury prone with long arms than with short arms. Now, uh, short arms are good for all pressing movements, for Olympic weightlifting, um, and for, say, some gymnastics things. And um, it's interesting because now we get into these uh, multiple activity sports like decathlon or CrossFit. Look at the CrossFit competition. You have gymnastics, Olympic weightlifting, which are, you know, to be a good gymnast, you need small hips and a very light lower body, short legs and light lower body, okay? And, and um, for Olympic weightlifting movements, like, like cleans and snatches, you need a very, you, you, you're better off having wider hips and a heavier lower body. So when you do chins, you have a hard time, okay? So, so there you have a, a conflict. And then you have the cardiovascular part, say in CrossFit, where you need to be as light as possible with low muscle. <laughs> so, 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 so it's a give and take, okay? And depending on how the competition is structured, whether you have more gymnastics or more weightlifting or more cardiovascular, different body types will do better at a competition CrossFit than others. Right. And they change the events all the time. But say for running and jumping, uh, as I said, a, sh a short trunk, uh, long legs are an advantage, small hips. Small hips are, are, are a very good advantage, say, in uh, hurdles, where you have this hip rotation or going over the hurdles. But wide hips are a great advantage in all throwing movements, rotational throwing movements. Interesting, I'm, I'm interested to see quarterbacks. Quarterbacks that can throw long, perhaps, perhaps they have uh, wider hips, um, longer, longer arms. Yeah. But though, say the wide receivers, they have to be like sprinters, you know, narrow hips, uh, long legs, short trunk, hmm. long arms. Uh, linemen have to have big, uh, big hips, big shoulders, a uh, lot of muscle, a lot of bone. Um, what else? What else am, am I missing? In proportion wise, well, yeah, I think you got them all. I mean, the the leg disparity, like upper okay. and lower leg, would be an interesting one for people to know. There, we're talking about just length of legs and length of arms. Mm -hmm. Now we can split the arm into the forearm and the arm, the upper arm. For example, uh, wrestlers, grappling sports like wrestling, like jujitsu, like judo, like well, arm wrestling, they need uh, short forearms. Okay, short limbs and a lot of muscle. Uh, other sports, on the other end, you have kayaking, rowing that need long forearms. Okay, so the, the, the ratio of your forearm to your upper arm is very important in those uh, upper and lower ends of, of sports. Say, a rest, if a wrestler wanted to be a good wrestler with short forearm, wanted to be a good kayak or canoe athlete, that's almost impossible, right. okay? And then the lower leg, the, the lower body, you can split it up into your femur length and your tibial length. And people that have, in general, a long tibia and a short femur can do squats a lot better uh, in a more erect position. 
usually have less lower back injuries. But of course, squatting also has to do with ankle mobility and technique and everything. There are other factors involved. But people with short femurs and long legs are usually good sprinters, good jumpers, okay? And um, people with the opposite, with say a very long femur and a short tibia, they would probably be better at endurance events, especially long distance cycling, hmm. where you have like a locomotive uh, structure there right. working. That makes sense. So, so it's interesting, yeah. yeah. So one thing you brought up there was linemen, and I'm curious as we're speaking about outliers, like what are some of the numbers you saw? So the average person is is a you know relative bone to muscle mass one to five point two. What are some of the, the larger numbers you would see in something like an NFL lineman? They're there. Same same ratios. Yeah, same ratios. Oh, really? Same upper limit ratios, but way bigger skeletal structure. But instead of having a skeleton that's eight point five kilos, seventeen pounds, eighteen pounds, they have skeletons that are thirty six pounds. So their skeletons are so much bigger. So that larger skeleton, you still multiply it by 5, 5.2, and you get an enormous amount of muscle. Okay, you get these 300-pound linemen. Okay? They actually, for their playing position, need more weight because it's so static what they do. They need, on the other extreme is the sumo wrestler. Okay? But linemen... They, they, you know, there's so much muscle that you can put on and you still need more weight. So they have to put on more fat because they can't put on more muscle, okay? And it's interesting to see, I have found that defensive linemen, they have to run just a little bit more than offensive linemen. So they are leaner. Right. <laughs> so, so it's so position specific. But those guys are outliers. I don't think they're homo sapiens. I think they're Neanderthals. <laughs> that did not extinct in the last ice age <laughs> yeah. because those bone structures are just so hard to come by. They're as hard to find as to find people that are, I don't know, six, seven or, or whatever to play in the basketball in the NBA. Mm -hmm. It's really, really, they're a genetic minority in any population. Yeah. Fascinating. So one thing I'm not sure we've ever talked about, I'm curious if, if anthropometrics looks at, um, cranium and jaw size. So I know we mentioned cranium a little bit, so, but like, does that, does that have any correlation with anything you've seen uh, as far as performance or as far as anything that, that any correlation that gets drawn there? And, okay. Uh, that's a whole different area. In anthropology, they study what's called cran craniofacial anthropometry. Mm. And they study all, you know, they study the, the cranium width. Okay. The, and, and, and the jaw structure and the length of the nose and the size and shape of the nose and the ears and, and everything. And I'm not familiar with that kind of research, so I would not be able to say. The only thing I studied was, uh, they studied the shape of the skull, for example. And um, the shape of the skull is interesting. They measured this uh, cranial breadth to this cranial length. Okay, they have developed a ratio. If you have a head that when you look at it on top, say from a bird yep, view, a bird view, if you look at it on top, if it's a more round shape, that is a shape that is good for conserving heat. Hmm. So people whose ancestors came from cold places, say north of Europe, 
usually have rounder shapes, heads, and people whose ancestors come from, say, the more tropical areas, they have a more elongated shape, okay, which is better conductive to losing heat. So this is how climate, climate has been the main driver for shaping our skeleton. For con and climate, you know, conserving heat calories where it's very hard to find food and losing heat in, in areas where, where, where it's very hot and you've got to keep your body temperature down. How much can we influence our, our skeletal structure from childhood? Okay, once you're an adult, I mean, that's it. Sure, you can, with nutrition and exercise, prevent losing bone mineral density, of course. Uh, but uh, I have found three areas where you could influence or affect or change the bone structure in humans. And um, that, has, that has been in tennis players. When you look at one arm compared to the other, I found like half an inch more in... In, in their like bone the breath, breath yeah. at the humerus, yeah. it's incredible. Of course, they have like an inch and a half more in muscle, but to find an increase, half an inch increase in bone breath. Do you think it's, it's the impact or do you think it's the, the rotation at the wrist or a combination? Both. Yeah. Both. All these forces, these torsion forces, uh, Deborah Kerr, a great bone researcher in Australia, she did a one-year study in postmenopausal women she had, they, they had unilateral uh, biceps curls. Only one arm. Only one arm for one year. <laughs> right. She's great at motivating these old ladies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she had one group doing regular curls, and she had another group doing torsion. Hmm. And she found that the ones that did the torsion uh, deposited bone, more bone mineral content than the ones that did the regular curls. Interesting. So all these torsion uh, impact uh, forces... Uh, through muscular exercise and jumping and uh, affect bone size and, and solidify it. So it's a combination of all these forces. But an in, a very interesting thing I found in these uh, elite tennis players, top 50 tennis players, once they were adults, the radius bone was one centimeter longer on the plain arm than on the other arm. Wow. That's the first time I see an increase in the length of a bone induced by exercise. So exercise has a, such a great impact on it. And of course, if you accompany it with proper nutrition. Now I found tennis, I found Olympic weightlifters, and I found gymnasts. The three groups that altered their bone structure because of the activity. Now, in order to do this, you had to start before puberty, continue throughout puberty into adulthood. It's a 10-year, at least a 10-year uh, period where, you, where, where you're going through the, the bone growth and, and through that bone growth period, okay, you, you start uh, changing the bone shape slightly and you can only do it when, when they're young, before puberty, during puberty and a little bit after, okay? So, and there's a threshold, a minimal amount of work of stimulus that you have to go through every week, like at least six hours a week of that activity. Which gymnasts, which uh, tennis players and uh, weightlifters that start at age 10 do. Amazing. So one thing we didn't talk about is you said that the top end genetic limit of muscle mass is 5.2 times um, skeletal system. 
And um, I'm curious what you've seen people do with if, if they introduce exogenous hormones. Okay, with exogenous hormones, they can go beyond that natural limit. And say in, 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 in males, they can go up to, usually go up to from five, five to one muscle to bone ratio. Usually, for example, on steroids, I haven't seen it with growth hormone. Okay, I've only seen it with steroids. And with steroids, they can go up to, say, six, a six to one. So that's a huge improvement. And I have found that professional, professional bodybuilders can go as far as seven or 7.7. I measured a 7.7 professional bodybuilder. Okay. So my question is, professional bodybuilders, uh, uh, if, if they're doing performance-enhancing drugs, Okay, but so are other people doing it. Why is it that most people get to 6 to 1 ratio and they can go up to 7 or 8? Okay, there's something else there. There's something genetic, whether it's the amount of androgen receptors in the muscle, whether it's low myostatin levels, whether it's the drive, the driven, I don't know, but there's something there that, that, that I'd like to find out what it is. Yeah, and so it's funny because I... I spent a lot of time over the last five years really trying to dissect the term genetics when people say that guy's got a genetic advantage. So looking through like all the genetic predispositions that may predispose someone to having some unique advantage. And if you start breaking it down, there's certainly a long list of things that it could be, right? It certainly isn't some, some narrow list of things, you know, to include you and I speaking uh, extensively about nutrition and people's ability to process inflammation, <laughs> people's ability to process glucose and, and carbohydrates, like people's ability to synthesize protein or not break Ooh. down protein, all of those things play, right? Androgen affinity, all of these things play in massively. And then yeah. you add the psychological component on top. I think it'd be very interesting to study and it'd probably be a 10 to 20 year study, um, you know, to, to really get all the data points to see like, what are all the things that go into this? Cause you're right. Cause you're looking at myostat and you're looking at IGF, you're looking at growth hormone, you're looking at testosterone, you're looking at everything, you know, and, and, and stress and cortisol and HPA and Ooh. all of it. Right. So if you go, go down a list of all the things, um, it's extensive. So when people say that person has, has um, great genetics and that's why they're able to do it and that's why I'm not, I think it's a cop-out. I think if we just start learning to objectify and go, here's all the things that we could potentially do, maybe, again, within reason, we can learn to push our genetic potential and, and, and maybe allow more people to reach those uh, yes. extreme levels, the outlier level. Yes, and that trickles down into health. That's yeah. the beauty of, yeah, of, it has to. of, of sports and yeah. elite athletes. Because all that information can trickle down into health, especially uh, avoiding sarcopenia and osteoporosis. Okay, as people age, you know, all these techniques, look, look, look at now all these uh, uh, techniques and nutrition advice and exercise advice to prevent or retard losing muscle mass and after age, say, 50. And if, you know, a strong muscle structure means that your bones are strong usually. So it goes hand in hand. And that's quality of life. That's uh, reducing metabolic disease risk, reducing insulin, I mean, diabetes risk, uh, improving health, everything, being able to be self-sufficient, because you can go walk to the store, uh, pick up grocery bags, take them yourself, go up three flights of stairs. Uh, strength and muscle is, is health. Yeah. Okay? So, so that's hugely interesting, yes. 
Yeah. So, Francis, you spent the last 25 years becoming the world authority on this, and now you are taking it around the world to the top sports teams and athletes around the world to help them optimize their structure, help them optimize the amount of their, their bone to muscle mass. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what your, your focus is right now. Well, my, my focus right now is on mainly on – I have worked with a lot of sports that are played in Europe and South America and Australia and Middle East soccer, rugby, field hockey, uh, you know, and some basketball. But I'm very interested in this new field that uh, I've been starting to research, which is gridiron American football, which I think is fascinating because you have such specific player roles, which are so different from each other. Yeah. And you need all types of, you know, different types of body shapes and sizes. And you have these incredible athletes and it's so competitive and all, all the strength and conditioning people I have been talking to, I mean, they're so on the edge and so trying to improve that extra 1% that's really stimulating and amazing. And, and also with, with, with baseball and with ice hockey and, and basketball. Uh, so, so I wasn't very familiar with, with esports and it's fascinating because it's opening a whole new area of research where I didn't know where this model would fit in and it fits in right nicely uh, in the same way that I'm also interested in, say, winter sports. Okay, what's the ideal size for a downhill skeletal size and muscle size for a skeletal downhill uh, uh, skier, for a cross-country uh, 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 ski person and, you know, for all the other uh, events. In, in, in a winter sport. It's a, it's a whole new challenge in biomechanics and um, body composition, body structure, and how to integrate nutrition, supplements, and um, training into achieving that optimizing uh, and talent identification to achieving that, optimizing that, that, that performance. I think, I think that's fascinating. So you said talent identification, and this may be a loaded question, but do you think you could walk into something like the draft or something like the combine in any sport and, and maybe have some predictive ability in someone's future high-end potential. Obviously, you can't predict everything because of, there's the psychological yeah. and the performance and, and the, the work the ethic components. And the, and the yeah. But as far as the um, predicting whether or not they, they physically meet the Oh, guy. absolutely. That's what I've been, uh, of course, with all the outliers that you have, as you mentioned. But that's what I've done with, with say, the sport of rugby in Argentina. I developed the standards for the selection process uh, for the national teams. And it was based on skeletal size. And so we, we were able to reach uh, two World Cup semifinals uh, by choosing and, and also in the, youth, in the youth World Cup also, uh, just by choosing the right skeletons and, and putting them through the right training and nutrition to achieve the muscle mass that uh, was required for their positions at an international level. So, so, so that was really interesting. Also with youth, with youth soccer as well. Uh, I worked many years, about 15 to 20 years with developing youth soccer talent for the main clubs in Argentina, Boca and River Plate. And even though soccer is not so much dependent on body size and structure, 
there are some factors there that are important. And um, also, we had the Youth Olympic Games in Buenos Aires three years ago. And, and I helped uh, develop the Talent ID program um, to recruit talent at age 14, four years before the Olympic Games, so that at age 18 they would, you know, they would be in the right category. However, youth Olympic sports, the youth Olympics, we run into some problems there. Let's say cycling. The event in cycling was a combination. In order to get your medal in cycling, you had to do like a sprint competition and an endurance competition. So whoever was able to win that wouldn't be the right body type for right. going into endurance or sprinting. Right. So that was a bit, uh, I was a bit disappointed with the way they chose the Youth Olympic Games. Or for example, rowing. There was no weight category in rowing. So the people that were very good, rowing usually has two weight categories. So, and they're talking about eliminating one of them. So I find a lot of people that are very good athletes, very good rowers, but their body type just fits in between. They're too small to be open category and they're too big to be lightweight. So they love rowing. They're good rowers. They're good athletes, but there's no place for them at the Olympic level. Uh. You know, you run into those problems as well. So maybe you can help um, uh, organize the sport in a different manner, according to this. And also we have the problem of weight category sports. You know, my suggestion is to eliminate weight category sports and base them according to height. That way, at a certain height, you try and have the maximal amount of muscle and strength and you're very well nourished for your competition. Instead of doing the opposite, going for diets for months, dehydrating, and you have deaths in wrestling, you know, in jiu-jitsu because of this strategy to go low in the weight category. You know, so a lot of these weight categories could be arranged through anthropometrics quite easily. And we avoid all these problems of, uh, that we have, you know, these uh, eating disorders and everything that's caused by, by, by these weight categories yeah. instead of height categories. Are there any interesting online resources? Because I know there's going to be a lot of listeners out there going, I want to measure myself <laughs> or I want to measure my kids. Are there any resources okay. you could point people to? Anthropometry is a, is a skill and a science, an art and a science, okay? You ha in order for it to be, to be trustworthy, you have to measure well. If you measure wrongly, it's no good. It's no good. So you have to make certain you are certified as an anthropometrist and um, that you abide by certain standards of, uh, uh, that you reduce your technical error of measurement that you follow a protocol, that you do landmarks on the bony parts, so you're measuring in the same place, that you get certified, that you have enough practice. And for example, the International Society for the Advancement of Kin Anthropometry, ISAAC, that's ISAAC slash global, uh, they, they run these certification courses all over the world. They're not perfect, but, um, but um, we're all humans, we're not machines. But um, it's the best that we can do so far. 
but it's really important to measure well, okay? And to use the right equipment, that equipment's calibrated, that you know your technical error of measurement, okay? So that when you're doing repeated measurements on athletes, um, you know your confidence interval of error. So then you can say, yes, you changed a larger amount than my confidence interval of error. So that means that you are losing fat or gaining muscle. If the change month to month on an athlete, say, is smaller than your error your in measuring, meant, then you cannot say, okay, the change was so small that it's below the possibility that I made an error in measurement. Okay? So I cannot say that you have changed. Now, you, if you do it that way, you do it objectively, you do it scientifically, uh, you take the trouble to measure your technical error, to improve it, and to assess it when assessing change. If you do it that way, then uh, it becomes a very useful tool. If you, just, if you don't do landmarks, if you don't do repeated measurements, if you don't get it certified, uh, then it's not trustworthy. So one thing we've also spoke about, I'm curious about your opinion, what do you think the likelihood is that in, in some short amount of time or some reasonable amount of time, we can get to the point where people can check this through a photo based on like, take a, take a picture of yourself standing in front of a wall, measure from here to here, here to here, here to here, and maybe get some semblance of, of an understanding of, of the lengths of your bones? I think that that is the future. Yeah. Imaging techniques will improve and will, will, will be more accessible to people and will be a lot less expensive than they are right now. And uh, this, I, think, I think we're heading that way. And I think uh, it'll be great to just stand there and have a body scan done, done not just on your, your outside, but your insides. And you will be able to quantify all this in, say, a minute or less. Uh, I'm hoping... I'm hoping for that day, okay? Yeah. It'll reduce my workload as an anthropometrist and probably reduce error as well. Yeah, and we'll still need access to your database. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> there are some imaging techniques now appearing all over the place, and I'm hopeful for them, but we need the reference database. If you measure and you, uh, you don't know what you're comparing against, I mean, what's the muscle mass or the bone mass of a wide receiver with, say, an MRI scan. Uh, there are some data there done by some great researchers here on DEXA, okay? But, what, um, but not on every sport. And the, the advantage of anthropometry is we have 60 years worth of databases to be able to compare. Choosing a tool for body composition or body structure, uh, the validity of the technology is not only the important part, the other important part is, do you have the database to compare it against? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's another issue. Francis, that was incredibly insightful and valuable. I'm Please. eternally grateful for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I always appreciate your time. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Francis, for joining me. If you're not already following Francis on social media, I highly suggest you do so. He's got some incredible breakthroughs coming in this area, as well as some other very, very interesting breakthroughs going on in sports performance. Uh, today's podcast, once again, is brought to you by magbreakthrough.com slash muscle. Enter the code MUSCLE10. 
and get hooked up with 10% off the highest quality magnesium we can find anywhere. Thank you guys for tuning in and don't forget to subscribe to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast so you never miss an episode. We're coming at you every single week with a brand new podcast with an amazing guest to help you live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.